scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 19. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. The Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, whom appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray for uh, this moment. Living God, we thank you that you have a word for us this afternoon. We thank you for the ways that you have uh, worked in Rebecca and through Rebecca to prepare for, for this moment. Uh, help her to preach from the confidence that you have called her to this very moment to share your word with, uh, with us. Fill her with your joy. Fill her with your Holy Spirit as she speaks now. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Good afternoon, everyone. As David mentioned last week, 
We're going to be continuing to look at the book of Acts through till the end of the summer. And we'll be looking at stories of God working in unexpected places and with unexpected people. And today we're picking up the story of Saul. How do you recognize the work of God in your own life? What about it in our city? How about in our church? Sometimes this is a hard question to answer, especially when we're going through difficult seasons. For myself, I find it easy to see God when things are going well in my world, when I have success in ministry, when my health is good, my community is strong, when things seem to be coming together for me, that's when I respond with a yes. God is definitely at work here. And it's true that the good things in our lives are authored by God, the God who sends rain both on the just and unjust, who is the bringer of every good and perfect gift, as we read in James. But as you have probably experienced, life is often not as clear-cut as this. It seems to be often this mix of difficult and good, and sometimes it's just hard. And in the messiness of all of this, it can seem to be difficult to see the hand of God. What's he even up to? Maybe this is a season you're in personally. Or maybe it's a season we're in as a community with all the changes that have happened this year. Maybe we struggle to know what God's doing in our midst. Now you've just heard read the well-known account of Saul's conversion. But rather than focusing on this text for our sermon today, we're gonna to look at part two of the story. Instead of looking at the dramatic event, we're gonna look at what happens next in Acts 9, 19 to 31. I think this is actually a good text to look at to wrestle through the question of where God's working because it's a bit of an in-between passage. Nothing spectacular is gonna happen in our text today. We won't see any healing, no one will be struck dead or raised from the dead. But what we will see are some of the less dramatic but still significant ways that God works. And maybe by looking at this passage today, we can gain some insight into God's working in our midst as well. We'll learn here that God is at work in the in-between times that we so often find ourselves in. And I'm gonna suggest that there are four ways in this passage that we see evidence for the work of God. We see God in the expectation of the impossible, in character transformation, in the nature of community, and even sometimes in opposition. So let's look at this text together. To start off, let's briefly just recall the text that we just heard read. If this was a TV show, before seeing part two, there'd be this recap where they'd show key scenes of what just happened to remind us. So first scene, we'd see the image of Saul boldly on his way to Damascus with the goal of having followers of the way arrested. Next, we'd see him falling to the ground on the road surrounded by this bright light. He struck blind by an encounter with the risen Jesus, who he learns is actually the one that he's been persecuting. I think if this was our first time reading Acts, we might see this moment as God's judgment on Saul for all the evil he had done. Good, we might think. God struck him blind. Saul is finally getting what he deserves. God is avenging his people. 
I don't think we'd expect the plot twist that was about to happen. And the last flashback we'd see would be God telling a man named Ananias to go and see Saul. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. A bit of foreshadowing here for the huge role that Saul was going to have in advancing God's kingdom. So let's take a look at what happens next. If you'd like, you can follow along in your Bible or on your phone. So the story picks up in the second part of verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So here we find Saul in Damascus. He's just regained his sight, and he spends some time with the disciples there. Only now he has a different mission and a new way of seeing. Instead of arresting Christians, he's socializing with them. And not only that, but we read in verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? If you remember, that was his original plan. Some commentators have pointed out that it's interesting that Saul's first steps into ministry here seem to parallel Jesus' own. Both begin with a message in a synagogue, both audiences are astonished by what they hear, and both Saul and Jesus escape a violent response. Maybe this is a hint to us that it's actually Jesus still working in our world through his people here. Okay, I'd like you to think for a moment of the most outspoken celebrity or politician or public figure you can think of who would be opposed to the way of Jesus in the way that they speak or that they live. Someone who you would never imagine in a million years becoming a follower of Jesus. Do you have them in mind? Now, imagine if they started coming to our church. We've actually had our fair share of celebrities here at First Baptist. If you hang around our community long enough, the stories will come out. There was the time that Bill Clinton came to church in the 90s and there was high security. In the 50s and 60s, John Diefenbaker, the Canadian Prime Minister at that time, used to attend when he was in town. And I even heard that actress Kirsten Dunst came one week when she was filming Jumanji back in the day. There's a rumor that Bono once did, but I fact-checked this with a few people, and that one's not true. And of course, we've had any number of famous preachers, N.T. Wright, J.I. Packer, John Stott, Philip Yancey. But none of these people would have, would have been as surprising to have show up at our church as it was for Saul to join this community in Damascus. So going back to the person I asked you to picture, the last person you would ever think would become a Christian. Imagine they started coming to First Baptist. Maybe they want to join your connection group. Or they asked John about signing up for care training and they definitely show up at the Wall Center today for our after-service fellowship. And you have this awkward moment where they actually try to chat with you over a cup of coffee. I bet you'd be pretty suspicious. What was their motive for being here? Maybe this is similar to what these disciples in Damascus might have been feeling. Saul had been condoning the killing of Christians, and now he's preaching from the pulpit. And what's his message? that Jesus is the Son of God. 
So how might we recognize the work of God? First point, sometimes it's in the impossible. And in the in-between times, it's in the anticipation that God might do this again. What if your greatest enemy ended up being the person who brings your children back to Christ or becomes your mentor in the faith? Do you think it could never happen? Gonzalez, in his Acts commentary, writes that Saul's conversion demonstrates the transforming power of God. What this means, he notes, is that Christians must always see even their most determined enemies as potential brothers and sisters in Christ. That is why when the martyrs of the early centuries faced their judges, they made every effort to do so, not condemning these judges, but calling them to faith. Our God is a God of the impossible. And as we see in the story of Saul, he's all about salvation, reconciliation, and healing. It's what he does, and he does it well. So we need to be careful about hating even our enemies, because you never know which one of them may suddenly show up for family dinner. In the in-between times, when it's hard to see what God's doing, we can remember what he's done in the past, what he's capable of doing in the future, and to live an expectation of what he may yet do. Sometimes the work of God in in-between times is in the anticipation of the impossible. And so Saul, now a changed man, spends time with the believers in Damascus, and he even preaches in their synagogues. And despite people's astonishment, we read that Saul became more and more powerful. This is in the sense of more capable and more bold. God's spirit is at work in him. And he bewildered or confused the Jews living in, in Damascus by proving to them that Jesus was the Messiah. He's preaching back to his own people, but now his message has completely changed. He came to Damascus to have Christians arrested, and now he's the best evangelist among them. In verse 23, we read, after enough time or many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Now, it's worth saying just a quick word about chronology here. If you're familiar with Paul's letter to the Galatians, you may have noticed that he writes about these events in that letter. In Galatians, Saul, who is then known as Paul, says that after his dramatic encounter with Jesus, he spends some time in Arabia as well, which Luke doesn't mention in his book. And as we read Galatians, after returning to Damascus, he stayed there for up to three years before returning to Jerusalem. Scholars have offered several perspectives on why this is the case. Maybe that Luke didn't know that he went to Arabia, but it may simply be that Luke didn't think this was an important point to include in advancing his story. But we learn that Saul's stay in this region was maybe up to three years, certainly long enough to gain followers as well as to make enemies. We see in verse 23 that some who were not followers of the way were offended by his message and they develop a plot to kill him. Saul will later elaborate on this incident in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, and he notes that it was the governor himself of the area um, the governor under King Aretas that ordered this arrest. Tables had turned for Saul. He came to persecute Christians, and now he's leaving as one of them, running for his life. 
We read in verse 25, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in a wall. Which brings us to our second point. We see the work of God in in-between times in character transformation. I want you to try to picture this scene of Saul's nighttime escape. Many walled cities at that time actually had houses that were built into the side of the wall with windows that looked out. So it was probably through the window of someone's house that Saul escaped at this time. And he's not bravely scaling the wall like we would see in a Marvel movie, but he's in a giant basket. The Greek word used here for basket is a large, round, plated basket often used for fish. So can you picture the young Saul holding tightly onto the sides of this basket that maybe smells strongly of fish as it sways and wobbles its way down the wall into the darkness below? There's nothing cool or glamorous about this escape. It wouldn't do anything positive for Saul's image. Bruce Milne, when he writes about this incident in his commentary, notes how embarrassing this must have been for him. Saul came from a place of prestige, a rising star in Judaism. In the book of Philippians, we learn that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. He had it all. But this is the man who's now being lowered out a window at night in a fish basket. This little event makes such an impact on Saul that he'll write about it later in his letter to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians. We read there, if I must boast, he writes, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me, but I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall and slipped through his hands. This event made the list of Saul's most embarrassing moments and was seen by him as evidence of his weakness and an opportunity for God's power to be seen. Through this, we learn that Saul was changing. This proud man who used his power to oppress those he disagreed with is now stepping into the way of humility, following in the footsteps of a new master. Not only was Saul risking his life in boldly preaching a new message, but he's allowing himself to be embarrassed, humbled, humiliated for the saking of his new calling as a follower of Jesus. Something has changed for Saul. We see the work of God in in-between times in character transformation. And the story picks up again in verse 26. So Saul has managed to escape Damascus and he arrives in Jerusalem. And we read, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. I don't know about you, but I don't blame them. If you remember, when we first met Saul in Jerusalem, he was the one guarding the cloaks for those who stoned Stephen to death. And it was only just in chapter 8 that we saw Saul going door to door in Jerusalem and dragging both men and women who were followers of the way off to prison but a man named Barnabas vouches for him. This brings us to our third point, which is evidence for the work of God in in-between times is seen in the character of community. 
It's in the nature of the church. And what do we learn about his experience of community? This is a community that offered care. As we saw in Damascus, his followers were concerned for Saul's safety and took steps to practically help him. Despite their initial misgivings, they helped him to escape not once, but twice, as we'll see later on, saving his life at a cost to themselves. And now we see Barnabas using his influence with his community to advocate for Saul, to vouch for him. In verse 27, we read, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas was a respected member of this community. If you remember back in Acts 4, he was one of those who sold a property and then lay the money at the the apostles' feet. Barnabas believes that Saul's conversion is real, and he's willing to speak out on his behalf, to advocate for someone who wouldn't have been accepted otherwise. Willie James Jennings, in his commentary on Acts, writes, Barnabas becomes his advocate, proclaiming the mighty acts of God in and through Saul. This is quiet redemption, found in a simple act of taking hold of someone who stands alone, waiting for help. This too is the way of disciples, shown to us in Barnabas, who is skilled in quiet redemption. Barnabas welcomed Saul. Welcome to Saul may have seemed a small thing at this moment, but if you know the rest of the story, it had a pretty big impact. And so because of Barnabas' intervention and the support of this community, we read in verse 28 that Saul stays with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. As I read this, I can't help but think that it must still have been difficult for some of those in this community to welcome Saul. Maybe those who had been close to Stephen, whose death Saul approved of, or who had seen loved ones arrested at Saul's encouragement, and yet he's welcomed. And though it's not explicit in the text here, a willingness to forgive must have been another characteristic of this community, to even make this welcome possible an agreement not to hold his past against him, sometimes easier said than done. But this in itself is evidence of God's work. We see God's hand in a community that offers practical care, that advocates for those who needed it, and that was willing to extend forgiveness. God's work in in in-between times is seen in the character of community. And so, Saul is welcomed, and he stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to kill him. Finally, evidence of God's work is sometimes seen in opposition. This is the second time in seven verses that someone tried to kill Saul. It's not normally something we think about when we think about evidence of God at work. But if someone's worldview is challenged in some dramatic way, maybe it's not surprising that they'd react strongly. The message about Jesus and the change it brings about in Saul may have been seen as a threat to those who had been his community. The Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews who are mentioned here 
were known to have been even more zealous for the, tradition, the traditions than others may have been. They had left their homelands to intentionally settle in Jerusalem. I wonder if you experienced this at all when you decided to follow Jesus. Maybe not death threats, but misunderstandings. And yet we know that the gospel is always good news. That's its definition. The coming of God's kingdom brings life and hope. It brings reconciliation and freedom. But as we've seen in the book of Acts and up until now, people can respond to the same good news of God's kingdom in very different ways. I wonder if part of it is that the truth of the gospel can seem to hit us where it hurts. We value our independence, for example, but it reminds us that we actually need God and we need other people, and we're called into deep relationship with both. And, as it did with Saul, the good news about Jesus and his kingdom invites us to let go of some things that mattered to us a lot in our lives. Maybe priorities that don't align with God's, or pride, our reputation, our love of money, of status, of power. We're called to bow the knee to a new master. But maybe even strong pushback is in itself evidence of God's work. The message is hitting home. So our passage wraps up with Saul's needing to run again, this time to Tarsus. Verse 30, when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This last bit actually makes me wonder if it was a bit stressful for the church to host Saul at this time, with all the opposition he stirred up. Saul, later known as Paul, will reflect on this moment in Acts 22. He points out that God himself also prompted him to leave. And I saw the Lord speaking to me, he writes. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then the Lord told me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Here we see that Saul's calling is now to the Gentiles, and we'll hear more about this in the story later on in Acts. So what about for us today? What can we learn from this passage to identify God's work in our midst? What's the invitation to us in this? Today, God is still a God of the impossible. And as we live in in-between in times, we need to remember what he's done in the past and what he may yet do. And we can't rule out seeing God do impossible things. And this means not ruling out that anyone could turn to Christ, even those who might today be using their power to oppress others. But we should not expect a conversion in name only, but a conversion that involves character transformation, which brings us to our next point. God's work is still seen in transformed character. Gonzalez writes, likewise, while we keep the door open for the conversion of those who today use their power to oppress people or to oppress the faith. When such conversion comes about, we must invite them and insist that this truly be a new birth, 
a radical transformation such as that of Saul, who finds himself asking for strength and direction from the same ones who three days earlier he sought to kill. It may or may not happen as dramatically as we see in Saul's story, but a slow growth in Christ-likeness is evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. If you think back over the past couple years, is there anything new that you learned about yourself? Now, how might God have used your life circumstances over the past two years to shape you? Sometimes when we go through difficult seasons, it's an opportunity for God to be working in us. This can be the time that we seem to grow the most. So in the in-between times, let's invite God's spirit to keep shaping our characters more into the likeness of Jesus. Along with this, God's work is still seen in the nature of community. Not that we're perfect, but together we're making small steps into the way of Jesus as God's spirit works in our midst. One way we might do this is in advocacy. We might take the role of Barnabas in our community today. How might you use your place of influence and connection in our church, if you have one, to welcome other people in? Maybe to include those who might have a harder time being welcomed, or who are from a different culture, life stage, or even marital status than you are. Some of you are already really good at doing this, I know. Could we take the initiative to invite someone new into our friend groups, or to have someone over for dinner that we wouldn't normally include? You never know that you might be paving the way for the next Apostle Paul or someone else God will use in significant ways in his kingdom. Along with this, God's work in community today is still seen in forgiveness. In scripture, God invites us time and time again to forgive others as we have been forgiven. This assumes that there will be things to forgive. Of course there will be. Christian community has never been perfect. We will be hurt, and we will hurt others in this church. It's inevitable. But the way of Jesus is seen in what, ha in what happens next, in our willingness to forgive and in our work to make things right, to learn from our mistakes and to grow better and better at loving others. And finally, we might still see opposition to our choosing to live in the way of Jesus misunderstanding from friends, families, and communities. But even this does not mean that God is absent. So as we reflect on our lives and our, on our community here at First Baptist, and as we wonder what God's doing in this season, let's remember that it isn't always in the big successes or in the spectacular. God is working in the in-between times. He works in things like quiet advocacy as we choose to look out for each other. His work is seen in the growth of our characters, which seems to happen mostly in difficult seasons. And his work is seen in our continued willingness to choose to love each other in community, to decide to forgive and to allow ourselves to be forgiven. And in these in-between times, we can live in expectation that eventually, inevitably, once again, we will see God act in the impossible as well. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you that you hold both our lives and our church in your hands. We invite you to be at work in our midst, even in the ways that might seem impossible to us. 
May we be known as a community that loves well. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.